Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, I'm Sai. This is Ace Podcast Nation. Welcome back. We're here at Eat Sleep Media again for another episode of My Story. And I am delighted to be joined by former Surrey and Glamorgan cricketer and, of course, author, Mr. Mark Frost. How are you, my friend? I'm very good and uh, nice to meet you, Sai, on your podcast. Thank you very much. Um, so, obviously, I think we'll start with cricket, but I'd like to, I'm kind of interested in the, the early days of my guests as well. Um, tell us a little bit about the very early days of kind of life. For Mark Frost as a, as a child growing up? So I grew up in the West Midlands in okay. uh, Tipton and Wolverhampton and uh, three brothers so we all played cricket in the back garden my dad played and um, one of my best friends at school introduced me to the local cricket club at the age of nine and uh, suddenly started playing hardball cricket and I learned all my cricket really through that junior section uh, in that little bit of the West Midlands there. Um, and grew up in that area and then eventually made it made the way into playing Birmingham League cricket, which was the best standard of league cricket in, in the West Midlands at the time. Played some minor counties cricket for Staffordshire um, and eventually uh, went to Durham University as well, although I went there to read geography as opposed to play cricket mm-hmm. as, like some people did. So. No, cool. So, was it always cricket for you? Was that your sport, or was there other sports? So I played were... soccer. Or I wasn't very good at soccer, but I kept goal, so I could sort of dive around and sometimes catch the ball. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, I played soccer till I was about twenty-three, okay. uh, something like that. Mainly because people didn't want to have a playing goal, so I said I'd do it. And you know, yeah, just kind of jump in there, put the green top on, and <laughs> away you went. Yeah, but it was. It was mainly cricket, really. Was cricket something that you were naturally good at, or did you have to work hard at it in the kind of to pick it up and things like that? Um, I found I was naturally good at bowling, so from an early age, I, I 
I knew I could bowl quite quickly f you know, compared to others. Um, and I just fell in love with the sport, the whole rhythm of it, you know, the, the story that it tells, particularly the longer version of it, you know, the test matches. Um, and, you know, got got amazed by, you know, the, the stars of the day and, you know, watching the great players of that day. And, and, and it was pretty much on telly all the time as well, whether it's uh, test matches or the, the old Sunday league, the old John Player League. So you got to know a lot of players quite well. Um, I didn't go to too many games myself at the time. I, I went to watch Worcestershire a few times at, Dud at Dudley Cricket Club and then Warwickshire at Edgepreston. So they were the nearest, um, very occasionally to New Road to Worcester. Um, but yeah, that was that was my background in cricket, really. Yeah, cricket was so accessible. Like when I even went, like when I was a young kid, I remember watching. You know, all the test matches would be on BBC, and, and it was so accessible that, like you said, you knew all the players. You know, and I think that's one f one of my real frustrations with. As I see, like my kids now are 18, 16, 14, and they don't really have an interest in cricket other than they might watch it if it's on, you know, sort of me and my father-in-law might be watching it or something like that. And I, that's my kind of one disappointment with that because I think it's not as accessible on TV if you haven't got Sky and BT and the things like that, which we haven't always had. So it's, I think it's, it's not as accessible. And, I, and when I look back to my childhood, it, you know, it was very easy to watch. Top yeah, I mean, it's, it's improved a little bit in the last couple of years with the hundred. So, with my yeah. work, I've been very involved with the hundred, and that's just finished yesterday at um, Sapphire Gardens. So, the fact that BBC Two are now showing uh, uh, cricket as well as Sky is is a real step forward as well, yeah. and and particularly good for so many girls and women to see the game on telly. You know, on the evening at tea time. Um, and actually to see professional women playing playing cricket, you know, that, it's a fantastic role model for so many youngsters um, now. Yeah, 100%. I think um, being on terrestrial TV is a massive thing, and I think it makes a massive difference because... So I don't... I, I'm a massive follower of, of, of most sport, you know, football, cricket. I don't really follow women's football at all, even in the Women's World Cup. Now I haven't really got into it too much. Whereas women's cricket, my kids, they will watch it. My kids' girlfriends will watch it because it's on TV. And, and mm. even if they're not cricket fans already, it's something that appeals to them and something that they can resonate with, I think, ultimately. And um, I really enjoy the women's cricket. Whereas I think if you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I think I probably would have said, no, I probably wouldn't watch that. Well, the standard has certainly yeah, increased, uh, absolutely. for sure. And, you know, you've got some fantastic cricketers. You look at someone like Tani Bowman, who scored that 100 a week ago, absolutely, you know, Unreal. fizzing the, 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 the game for, for girls to watch. And, and, and I think with this year has been a pivotal year where with the 100, you, you, your ticket gets to the women's game and the men's game. And a lot of people just come for the men's game, you know, the second game in the evening. And now more than half people are coming to watch the women's game. So yesterday we had seven and a half thousand in Sapphire Gardens, a crowd of ten, eleven thousand. So most people are saying actually both games are worth watching. Yes. Um, and uh, they've been exciting. I mean, we've had you know 
two or three games, literally last ball thrillers. You know? Oh yeah, that, the one which was tied the other day. Yeah, the man at the tied game, um, and and that's really what that competition is, is doing is reaching out to people who've never really considered cricket. Um, it's reaching out particularly to girls to 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 think actually that's a sport for me. Um, and it's making it much more accessible and, and giving people a dream of maybe they could be out there on that big stage one day in the future as well. So, do you think, obviously, Tammy Beaumont, um, I think, scored 100 the other day, didn't she, mm. in the 100? And then, obviously, uh, she scored 200, I think, for England in the summer in the test. Was it a test match or was it the... Yeah, it was a test match. She scored 200, wasn't it? You're not talking to the right person. I'm not a big Anna, ah, okay. so don't... Yes. Don't ask me for stats. No, but I, I know she's a, a fantastic yeah. player and a, and a brilliant. She's so full of energy when you meet her as well. She's so you know, bubbly and energetic. So it's great to see the effect that she's playing. And I really hope that she gets back into that England one day squad. And, and I'm pretty sure with recent innings, is she will do. Yeah, and I think look, ultimately, I know there's detractors of the hundred and things like this, but I think particularly on the women's side, but also in the men's side, is if you can get kids who they kind of get into it in that short form, they'll follow players. So I saw some some young girls yesterday um, with T-shirts saying, we love Zach Crawley, just three girls. I think they probably were somewhere between, I don't know, nine and say 13. Yeah. But they obviously are a big, you know, that's their player or whatnot. Yeah. So they are more likely to follow him wherever he goes so they'll watch him in the test matches they'll watch yeah. him everywhere and I think that's the same for Tammy Beaumont and the same for, for any other player the short form I think there's a place for all of it mm. even though I my favourite form of cricket is still test cricket because I think no other form of cricket provides that level of test well if you look at the Ashes series this year fantastic spectacle of, of skill over a long game the longest game possible but you've got any variation that you want. You, there's no restrictions, whereas in the short game, there's, there's tons of restrictions in terms of fielding and where you can bowl and bat and all that. Um, but it's really captured the nation again, hasn't it? You know, that story, lots of little sub-stories, like the Johnny Bairstow thing, yeah, you know, but it just ramped it all up. And, and ramp is a good word because <laughs> everyone's playing all these amazingly new shots and, and pretty effectively are now. So that the the... There's never a dull session. When I went to see my first test match, I was probably 10 or 11, you know, a long time ago at Edgebaston. These are the days you didn't need a ticket, you can just pay your money on the day. And yeah. um, England was something like 167 for six after the first full day. Well, that would be like just after lunch nowadays, yeah, you know, 160. So the, the, the game has massively challenged. And I think it's really complementing where the 100 is now to to reach out to that new audience and, and to make sure that as many, what I would like to do in my role now, which is I'm responsible for all our grassroots work across Wales, which is that every girl and boy in Wales actually seriously considers cricket. It's not just some or those that have a mum or dad that were involved in it or a best mate like I was, you know, yeah. hundreds you of get, years you ago. Get through it through people but actually them. everyone thinks, oh, I'll give cricket a go. I'll mm. give it a whirl and see if I like it. Absolutely, yeah. And if... Uh, I think that's so important for the future of, of cricket. And I know, like, uh, so when I was a teenager, so you're talking 90s, um, we used to play 20 over cricket as kids. And then you'd play sort of 50 or 40 over cricket with mm. the seniors. 
but I know now they play, or they certainly in recent years they've been doing twenty over cricket in the men's as well. Yeah. They have twenty over tournaments and stuff like that. Do you think at some point we'll see hundred the hundred format in like the village clubs and and kids at levels and things like that? You may do. I mean, the, anyone that's run any junior cricket on a, a cool summer's evening on mm. a Thursday night knows that you you need to get through the game quite quickly, and and so people have been innovating with bowling 10 overs from one end and 10 overs from another okay. end, so you don't have so many changeovers. Um, and, and that's what the 100 has done, the countdown cricket. It means that you, you have fewer changeovers so that there's less standing around, really, and, and the, the game moves on quickly. So um, it may well be the whole idea of that second innings being a simple countdown. You've, you've got 50 balls left and you've got to score 83 runs. It's very simple. You know, yeah. It's really easy to understand. Um, I mean, you've got all the stats there for the real, you know, people who love all that, all the other numbers and the partnerships yeah, course, yeah. and and who did what and the averages and that. But you know, one of the classic things that somebody who's not au fait with cricket will say halfway through a game, they'll say, "Who's winning?" Yes. You say, "Well, it's not like that because mm-hmm. not everyone's had their go at batting." But like in soccer or rugby, if it's if you if you're three one ahead, you're winning three yeah, one, aren't you? Of course, yeah. But it doesn't mean you're going to win. No. And and whilst it's a bit of a gimmick on in the hundred now, we have this winometer, which yeah, is yeah. Uh, every now and again it pops up to say that Welsh Fire are sixty seven percent likely to win, and it's just a bit of fun in between, you know, the breaks of of, course, the, yeah. of play. But it's making the game real and you know, understandable. To people so that um, uh, people can get it and, and pick it up straight away. Yeah, absolutely. When we went, uh, me and my father-in-law went to watch uh, the fire uh, Saturday before last, and um, the women. We went. We wanted to be down for the women's game because we followed the Welsh fire, both men and women. And we was we had said because it was a Saturday, we kind of expected there'll be a few you know in for the start of the women's, but mostly it'll just, people will sort of drip through. Mm. Throughout the day, but actually we were surprised at how many, women, uh, how many people were there for the women's game at the start. Yeah, and you know by I think probably twenty minutes into the women's game there was e- even more. Like it really yeah. filled up quick. Yeah, and um, there was a lot of families there. There was a lot of I thought the 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 guy had his microphone. I forget his name, but in between the balls you have the guy with the microphone who goes around the crowd the and he's getting yeah. the kids, yeah. getting the kids involved. All the kids left that. Even the kids on the other side of the ground, who can see the kids, you know, being interviewed and and who's going to win, Welsh Fire and and this that and the other. Mm-hmm. All of those little things will make those kids keep coming back and hopefully take that love yeah. of cricket into oh, exactly. their teens. And you got someone like him doing that. You've got also got Lauren Jenkins, who's you know, well known in Welsh media. Um, that that presentation, you know, cricket like a lot of sports have said. We're going to put the women's and the men's game shoulder to shoulder. So, the way it looks, the feel, the, the presenters, you know, um, a lot of my colleagues at Glamorgan have been working very hard to make sure that that experience when you go to Sapphire Gardens is, is makes you feel welcome and you feel at home. So, the facilities, the, the, the buildings, the, the welcome from stewards and volunteers, the stuff you see on the screen, the presenters, it reflects the community that we live in. And, Absolutely. And yeah. um, whilst we have a, a museum in Glamorgan, and, and I know the curator there is trying to make a lot of changes there, the museum reflects what went on in the past, and it's a bit too blokey and 
dads and lads, you know. Um, yeah. And and now, if you look at the growth of the game, the, the girls and women's membership of cricket clubs, for example, is like a perfect sales reps curve. You know, they they really steep going up every year. There's more and more clubs. In fact, last year was the first year that we had more than 50% of cricket clubs in Wales with some sort of female offer, be it a girls or a women's team. Um, and we know that's ahead of the curve compared to England, for example. So we're really proud of that, and but we want to take it even further. We're really ambitious that every club in Wales um, has a, a, a girls and boys, women and men option. In fact, men's cricket isn't, isn't technically men's cricket. It's open cricket. Anyone can play okay. it. Women's cricket is women's cricket. Yeah. Um, and, and the game is finding its way as to what, what are the best formats like you were talking about before to suit gender, age, ability. Um, but the game is, is constantly evolving to, to make itself relevant and, and real and exciting to, yeah. to people. Um, I'll put you on the spot a little bit. When the, the 100 format first was about and rumoured about and mm. came about, were you, as a fan of says someone who's a fan of Test cricket as well, were you a f- and someone who's played cricket as well? Were you a sort of a fan of it instantly? Were you a bit sceptical, or mm. were you kind of brought around to it? Where did you stand in the, those early days on it? So I guess uh, a lot of people were wary about: Do we need another format, mm. another short format? We've got twenty over cricket, we've got fifty over cricket. Uh, and then three day for the county championship or four day sorry um, and, and, and test matches but the piece of research that was done just ahead of the, the hundred coming out researched uh, thousands of 16 to 25 year olds about their awareness their visibility the, you know what was cricket about what were the perceptions of cricket and it was really negative uh, unfortunately really negative um, and when the the first uh, joint strategy for cricket was um, rolled out through a series of seminars across Wales. We we played this video, and I could sort of sense people thinking, "Oh, the hundred, you know, we need this." So I played this little four-minute clip, and it was really sobering for people to think, "Wow, you know, that that young people are growing up with no awareness of cricket or or its excitement, for example." So. Just in the the last month, you know, going to watch Welsh Fire and sitting in the stands, and I've I've sort of wandered around the stadium, and I was last night I was right at the top of the main grandstand, and okay. you know just getting a feel for it, and it was fantastic to see so many young families, young people, um, young women who in groups going out to watch the game, and it's absolutely done what it said on the on the on the tin, as it were, in in terms of reaching out to that sort of 16 to 25 year group and, and young families. With that comes a bit of a challenge because sometimes you get groups who want to have a pretty noisy, beery yeah. type of experience as well, so you do need to separate people from time to time. But um, other than that, it's it's been fantastic. So it's very different. It's the fast food option of cricket, but it, it's working at the moment. And the way that the game is going, if you look at all the main formats of the game, the um, <coughs> independent franchise style, like the Indian Premier League, like the hundred, is going to become the predominant form of cricket. With Test match cricket, certain formats of Test match cricket, like the Ashes, obviously 
will always be a, a, a big one. But a Test match cricket will have to evolve as well, probably. Yeah, I think. Obviously, we we saw things like day day night tests and things like that over the years. I think they will have to make some changes. Do you know on that? Um, just made me think. Go completely off my next question to think of something else. There was um a point in the Ashes where they came off for light, and I think they also um England were forced to bowl spin at yeah. a time when they needed yeah. wickets. In t- terms of Test cricket evolving, do you think things like a pink ball? For instance, where they can play, you know, if it gets up to a certain light meter or you know a certain light, where it's getting a bit tricky, but but the actual weather is okay. Mm. Do you think there's things like they could implement, bring in, you know, turn the floodlights on and obviously get the pink ball involved, or do you think that's something which? Well, that has happened. I mean, we've had sort of day-night test matches yeah. where they started in the afternoon, finished in the evening. We've we have had some, I think, orange or pink ball. But I think I mean more matches. in terms of. So you said just a regular test match, yeah. but then say you get to four o'clock in the afternoon when it's, it's a bit murky, and yeah. and could they then implement that where they because they change the balls if it goes out of shape and things like that. So yeah. look, the game is I don't know whether it's right or wrong. Um, one of the the great things about cricket is you have to adapt. Yes. So it's not like if you were to go to an indoor sports arena. The, con- the atmosphere and the surface stays the same, whatever. Yes. You know, in cricket, you could play on something with a lot of grass, which is green, something very dry, something that bounces a lot, something which is very slow, something which offers a lot of spin, uh, or something which is fantastic for batters, so you get a run fest. You know, from from game to game, it can vary so significantly, and that and that's when different people so I might be a fast bowler and, and the wicket might be great for me one day another game it might be a slow turner and, and you as a spinner might really come into it I might not bowl again at all yeah. so cricket is around about adapting to your circumstances and particularly if you play cricket abroad so I've had the fortune of you know, going to places like South Africa Zimbabwe India um, you have to adapt your your style and your approach to the the surfaces and the environment and the climate there. And that's one of the beauties of the game is that, you know, you, you, you can have so many different skills within a team that are used at different times in, in a cricket situation. So I wouldn't want cricket to become so uniform that it just becomes, you know, um, um, uh, you, you get a certain style of play all the time because the, the, the various conditions do give you different types of games and Absolutely, different experiences. Yeah. Which country which you have played cricket in did you have to make the most adaptions to your game? Uh, probably India because it was um, so hot and um, also the the ball gets roughed up so quickly because the outfield, you know, we get very used to the lush green grass of playing in the UK but out there the, the outfields are very dry and, and, and the ball will rough up very quickly. Okay. So the idea is, is a quick bowl of reverse swing and um, doing different things to get some lateral movement comes into play more so there. So probably India. So. Okay. What was your favourite country you played in? Uh, it was, oh, I don't know, <laughs> quite a few. Um, probably India has the most memories because it's the, it's the greatest... It was so different to what I was used to, so and the crowd is so responsive because they love absolutely, yeah, absolutely love cricket it, out there. So 
um, if you're doing well, you, you know, you get applauded, and um, you know, you, it, that was quite a thing playing cricket in India. Yes. And what about uh, which country were you most successful in in terms of your performances? Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure really. Um, I I mean, I only went on relatively brief tours, so I didn't okay. spend whole winters over yeah. there. Um, so I've, I've played most of my cricket here. Yeah, of course. Um, so we'll go back to to, to you. Um, so you obviously you started playing cricket at a young age. You you worked your way through. Um, you got to university. You played a bit of uh, minor counties cricket. Mm. Where did you sort of go from that point to then ending up playing cricket for Surrey and Glamorgan? So it was a bit of a convoluted story because I had a few trials, but I I'd never came up through any youth system, so I never played any representative cricket. Okay, um, that's quite unusual, isn't it? Yeah, um, and I sort of learned to play the hard way through clubs and with men and, and growing up in that situation. Um, but in the Birmingham League then, it was a, a closed league. Uh, you had the whole of the Worcester and the Warwickshire, you know, second 11s or the first teams who weren't playing, playing. So, for example, I, you know, I remember bowling against the, the young Graham Hick when he first came from Zimbabwe. No one had ever heard of him. I, no. I soon found out he was quite good on the offside. <laughs> um, and then um, I remember playing against the, the, the young Alan Donald um, when he was in the Warwickshire Colts. Um, thought he could he could be quite good. Um, so it was that standard of cricket, really. Uh, and that, Very high that, standard. That was a fantastic sort of proving ground for me. Then I played for Staffordshire in the, what was then called the Minor Counties. Um, I had a few trials, but I sort of didn't go anywhere because I wasn't... You know, you're not playing full-time, you're not really that fit. I wasn't that yeah. fit. Um, so I gave the idea up until... Um, Late summer, 20, when I was 24, um, Surrey phoned me up. Jeff Arnold, the former England and uh, and Surrey bowler, they'd got some injuries. Would I play? I played a few games for the twos. And I, I, I told my work, because their work had been very accommodating up till then, um, that I'd given the idea up, so I quietly went off and played these games. Did all right. They offered me a contract. And so at the fairly old age of 25, I then uh, joined Surrey, uh, which is a lot later than most people will, will say, when they yes. went into the game. So I had two really formative years of playing at the Oval, um, playing alongside people like Alex Stewart, Graham Thorpe, and um, Sylvester Clark, and people of that ilk, which mm. was fantastic. Um, Ian Gregg was the captain, who's the brother of Tony Gregg, who was an England captain at, at, um, previously. Um, and then uh, towards the end of those two years, they didn't renew my contract, but Glamorgan were, were interested. Um, but at that time, I had a bit of a purple patch because Surrey had lots of injuries, um, and I played in the first team all the way to the end of that season. And um, I got some wickets, which gave me a lot of personal confidence, and then I moved to Wales in 1990 and um, joined Glamorgan. And that was the year that Viv Richards joined Glamorgan as well. So... That was fantastic playing alongside Viv. And then I had a really good two years. I played in the first team most of the time. Uh, ended up getting my cap, which was great. But to play um, with people like Viv and Matt Maynard and, and, and people like that, it was a, it was a, really, a team on the rise um, mm. coming through. And, and in, in that decade, then, the, the team won, won quite a few trophies and medals Indeed. along the way. So uh, that brought me to Wales. 
going to ask you a question. It's, it might seem a bit weird, but so a friend of mine um, was telling me the other week that if Colin Metzen could bat, he would have played for England because he said basically he was such a good wicketkeeper that his only thing which sort of held him back was batting. Would you agree with that sentiment? You need to be careful here because I still yeah, keep in touch yeah, with Colin. So. Yeah. <laughs> He was an amazing keeper, absolutely. Yeah, someone I base my, my oh, keeping game yeah, on. Just watching him, you know, anticipate as much as you know, take the catches and that. Uh, he was a, a brilliant keeper, and probably yeah, he if he'd batted higher at the Glamorgan Order, you'd have had more of a chance of playing for England. I mean, there were a lot of really good keepers yeah, at that time. People like was. Paul Downton and Jack Richards of Surrey, um, you know, uh, and um, you know. So there were a lot of really good keepers. Jack Russell, another Jack one, you know. So, but, but, possibly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. It's just a, it was a weird that it just popped into my head after I was having a conversation with someone the other day on Jack Russell. Funny enough, I watched uh, someone sent me a clip yesterday of him standing up for England against I think, I think it's Alan Mullally, but it might be someone else. But it's a genuine quick bowler and he stood up because of the pitch being a bit low and he's putting a bit of pressure on the batsman and um, some of the takes that he takes down the leg side off the quick bowlers is um, just astounding like and mm. it's easy to forget all these years later all these years later how good a wicketkeeper he was mm. like simply sensational and he, have you seen his art he's very good oh artist. he's brilliant yeah, unbelievable well, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah but yeah he's a sensational keeper and as someone who like I used to really enjoy standing up as a wicketkeeper, particularly to some of the sort of quicker bowlers rather than the spinners. Mm. I know how difficult it is, and I was sort of saying to my son, and he was like, well, "My son was just sort of saying, well, he's just catching it.'" And I was like, oh, "It's not quite as easy as uh, just catching it." It's coming at ninety ninety five by an hour, yeah. and I'm moving a lot in the air to to adjust. So. Oh, it's uh, yeah, the footwork, the headwork, like keeping your head still, everything. Just uh, yeah, he's special, special keeper. Who do you think? Who's the best player you've played with, who perhaps didn't go on and play for England or their country? Ooh, um, I've not really thought of that to be honest. Because um, you've obviously played with a lot of sensational cricketers yeah. over the years so I'm kind of interested if there's one which sort of pops out and who's you know was really really good but never really got their chance um, ooh, I don't know I, I think of a few of my Glamorgan colleagues at the time who played a little bit for England and probably if they played early would have a longer run in so someone like Steve James yes, yeah. who played should have played a lot more than he scored did. so many runs for Glamorgan um, didn't he Steve Watkins was such a good bowler. You know, seeing him, you know, bowl at the other end, he was a fantastic, you know, partner to, to bowl with. So reliable, so effective a bowler. Always take wickets, um, and probably people like that, if they'd had a chance a little bit earlier, might have played a, a lot longer than they did. But I have to come back to you on that other question. Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, I always felt like maybe it was a bit of uh, sort of bias and youth. But yeah, I remember in my teens always being frustrated that Glamorgan players didn't seem to get the same chances that other county players did. Maybe, like I said, I was I was very young, but I always felt like you know Math Matt Maynard would come in for a little bit and then he'd be out quite quickly. Mm -hmm. The only one really who kind of broke that 
sort of cycle I've been in and then out was probably Robert Croft, Steve James, Steve Watkin, you know, they would get a chance and mm. wouldn't really, like, when you look at Steve James's record over the years at Glorgan, you'd think he should have played more international There's cricket. quite a few people like that, you look at someone like Hugh Morris, you know, he played, possibly could have played more as well, mm. so... Uh, that argument about you know the, the home counties has always been long held. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. Um, it's but it's tough. You know, it's tough to get to that level. Yeah, of course. A lot of people trying to do it. Yeah, and I think the, there's um, at that time as well when you know Steve James was around. England did have some very very good openers mm. in you know Mike Afton and Mark Butcher and these kind of Alex Stewart did a bit of opening in as well. Yeah. So there was you know it wasn't like they were struggling for openers, no. shall we say? Um, so did you move down to Wales because you were moving to Glamorgan? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Was that a big decision for you in terms of coming down here or up here down here? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, it was, I'd uh, just got engaged as well. Oh, okay. Um, and then we soon got married, and my wife was from Surrey, so she moved over. So it was quite a big investment for us both to come here, but you know, we loved the place, and you know, we've stayed ever since. Um, we've pretty much lived in Penarth all the time that we've been here, and uh, children have been born and bred here, so they passionately feel themselves as Welsh. And my much to the chagrin of my <laughs> wife, um, but yeah, we've it's been great living here. So um, really enjoyed the what Cardiff and the greater off area has to offer in terms of the environment and the accessibility, and uh, it's just been fantastic, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're not the first person I've spoken to recently, actually, who said they you know they came down to Cardiff or Wales for you know a job or, or a career move, and then never left because they enjoyed it and they loved it so much and yeah. whether it's the people or the area or a combination of, of everything yeah. Viv Richards tell me about the man well he was amazing I remember Alan Butcher was the captain at the time introduced me to him and I thought well like you need to mm -hmm. <laughs> I know who he is you know um, but he was he was uh, he instilled so much confidence in people um, he was 40 when he joined Glamorgan so he was obviously past his absolute prime but um, he would walk out and change games he would he was quite a useful bowler as well he was a brilliant fielder not just in the slips but in the covers as well okay. um, and you know he he obviously would challenge bowlers as well because bowlers knew they were bowling at one of the legends of cricket um, and he would turn it on in the big games the that, that where it needed to be done. I mean, there was obviously that fantastic final at Canterbury, but yeah. the one game that, that I remember a lot was the game at Hampshire, um, which which has been chronicled quite a few times. Um, David Gower was playing, um, Malcolm Marshall was bowling uh, for them, uh, a, a guy you don't really want to be 20 yards at the other end from. No. Um, but um, Viv ended up scoring something like 160-odd to win... A game that we probably probably would have lost um, and he hit something like 13 or 14 off Malcolm and in, in the last over which is quite something you know he was a one of the world's best bowlers yeah. you know. and um, the two umpires came off after the game and they made a comment and these are people who played forever and umpired forever 
and they put they said to Viv that was the best innings they'd ever seen, and I was sitting wow. in the corner, think going feeling really humble, thinking, wow, that is that is quite some, some statement. Yeah. yeah, but to play with him was fantastic, um, and you know he he would, of course he he knew so many great cricketers, people like both, and you know and it was always good when we played Worcester or later on Durham when both of them moved to Durham. Um, I've got quite a nice little entry in one of the scorecards where um, I came on to bowl at the end of a one-day game up in Durham and both came in. I tried to bowl a Yorker, but not very well, so we hit it right up in the air. I thought, oh, no, that's... Ooh, it's one of those where mm. it's gone miles <laughs> up. And Viv was just to my left, and he shouted, mine! You know, he was definitely going to take this. Yeah. So he took the catch, so I thought, that's quite a nice one in the, in the yeah. scorebook to have. Absolutely. So, but you know, he was brilliant. It was, and it reminded me, as I would run into bowl, there'd be Colin Metson keeping wicket and Viv at first slip. And he was a great big bloke, you know, he big shoulders. And that's the memory I had of him, like in the 1970s against Leon Thompson. You know, in, in those years of the West Indies, when in their in their pomp, um, when he would be at first slip to the likes of Holding. And, uh, Roberts and, and Garner and Co. So, um, no, it was fantastic to have had that opportunity to, to play alongside him. Really. What was he like off the pitch? Was he some? Was he quite sociable and someone yeah. who could be approachable to? Everyone? Oh yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, you know, uh, sometimes people made a lot of demands of him, but of course, yeah, um, yeah he was really accommodating. He would sign as much as he can. Um, very, very engaging. Um, He's a very passionate man, you know, he's very passionate about the quality of the game. So from a black Afro-Caribbean point of view, he had that perspective on life and he challenged a lot of the then hierarchy around how things were and how we're presented. So, um, you know, he obviously, whilst he was playing for the West Indies, used that to champion, you know, quality within sport and within cricket. And that's a really... Strong subject for me now because that's you know an area I'm I'm trying to drive here in Wales at the same time. So, yeah, but proudly passionate about his roots and, and and his background. But when he came to Wales, he fully became immersed and and gave his everything. You know, he th- thrown himself around and um, do everything. So it was a it was a great experience for the for three seasons he played. Yeah, I was going to say I didn't realise he was. I, I knew he, you know, he was in the sort of the latter parts of his career. I didn't realise that he was forty when he came in. Yeah. So and he was still throwing himself around. And he could still play. Yeah, I bet. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Um. After your playing career, where was what was the plan for you once you sort of stopped playing professional cricket? What was what was your plan? And did you stick to the plan, or did you go off into different directions? Not sure I had one really. Um, I it, it was a funny period. I had about four or five months where I was looking for work because I I decided to retire because of a bad back, and I was letting the team down more often than not. Okay. So I finished, and um, you never know when that's going to be. So you can't really plan too too hard for these things. Although I'd always always worked in the winters um, in what you might call a, a proper job mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, as opposed to playing sport but I was fortunate to get a, a role with what was then called the Sports Council for Wales now Sport Wales and I worked in the team that connected with all the governing bodies of sport in Wales 
Um, so I worked there for a bit. Uh, I then came back to um, lead on cricket de development across Wales uh, for the then what was then called the Cricket Board of Wales, a newly formed, fairly newly formed organisation. Then I worked back for Sport Wales again, um, looking after all the funding of all the all the sports and all the local authorities. All the so I was finding that my area of work was very much around getting people playing sport, particularly around grassroots participation. Um, and now I've been working back uh, with in this joint role across both Glamorgan and Cricket Wales, where I am responsible for all the grassroots work in, across Wales, all the club work, the training of coaches, getting more children, um, adults to pick up a bat and ball um, across the teams that we've got across Wales. Um, so I've been fortunate enough to been in sports management ever since I finished playing, which has been great, and 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 half of that time within the cricket world as well. But um, there's some fantastic things going on in Wales, and you know the hundred is a, a small example of some of the the growth that's going on in the game, particularly around women and girls. Um, clubs becoming more diverse. Um, and hopefully more inclusive, so they're a bit more representative of the communities that they are in. And um, so that's where I found myself, really. So I'm not sure there was a plan, but it's evolved that way. Yeah, indeed. Um, with the women's side of things, look, I just really interested, because obviously my, uh, my memory now of, of grassroots cricket is very much going back to you know, early 2000s, really, because that's the last time I was involved in it, mm. you know, week to week and day-to-day and, -day and things like that. I wonder how it's changed, because obviously, I think at that point, they was just starting to be, you know, girls' teams in the younger age group. So I played at Rada, mm. and there was, I think they were just starting to get some girls' teams and things like that. Like, where, how much of a evolution has there been since, say, you know, sort of 2005 to now in terms of, say in Cardiff, how many of the league clubs have girls' teams, women's uh, well, teams? Most of them. Like most of them, them yeah. In, have they got women's teams as well? Yeah, that's right. Most most, that's most awesome. clubs in this area now have a women's and a girls' team. Um, so a lot of women have come into the game uh, in their mature years through a softball version of it. So it's a... It's a bit like quick cricket. We may have yeah, played yeah, pairs yeah. cricket in the past where you play two or three overs as a pair and then the next pair come in. And if you're out, you lose five or six runs or something like that. But that very social, engaging, equal type of game um, was driven six or seven years ago, a softball rubber version of, of the game, and it absolutely took off. So lots and lots of clubs were finding that um, women linked to the, the club either through the cricketers or, or through their children, uh, took up the sport. And now there are tiers of competition now. So you've got still that social entry level. Um, you've got now competitive softball cricket uh, leagues across both yeah. South and North Wales. And then um, above that, you've got hardball cricket, where not so many are playing. Um, but those are the ones that are vying to play for Wales and um, of the younger cricketers, you know, to be the future professional cricketers that you know, playing for the likes of Western Storm or, or Welsh Fire, as we've just been experiencing. So 
and there's a really clear structure and pathway now for girls um, to to see because they can see that, that there's a you know, there's an end game now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to, to put all that effort in, there's no guarantees like anything, no. um, <clears throat> but it's so much more competitive now um, uh, for those that are picking representative teams. It's a, such much broader base of girls to choose from. So uh, it's been fantastic to see, and the, one of the messages that we encourage clubs that have perhaps haven't picked this up is that becoming more diverse is better for you. It's not just a political thing, it's not a box-ticking thing, although sometimes I'm accused of box-ticking. Okay. Um, but it's actually better for clubs to have uh, a, a, a more rounded demographic and more balanced uh, gender distribution across its members because you're bringing in uh, new ideas, uh, new money, um, new thoughts and innovative ideas as to how the club can run in the future. Um, and that's been fantastic for so many clubs. So at that level, that's been brilliant. The other big success factor since 2017 has been All-Stars cricket and latterly Dynamos cricket. So All-Stars is the, the entry point to five to eight-year-olds. Um, typically clubs will run that on a Friday night and it's absolutely escalated from a few to many. Um, and the, we've got several clubs for whom uh, to have 150, 200 kids just in that age group wow. is, is a normal thing and it's transformed them uh, massively. Um, so every child brings two parents and a sibling. Um, so suddenly that connectivity with their communities um, <coughs> more people involved in the club has been a fantastic transformative process for so many cricket clubs. So the, and our main challenge now is to, as they grow up and as they become <coughs> 9, 10, 11, 12, to have enough clubs, enough sorry, enough teams, organised teams for them to play in, yeah. um, which involves recruiting more volunteers and training them. So All-Stars cricket and, and its next step, Dynamos cricket, have been amazing. So those are the, the two big success factors in grassroots cricket, and they've changed the game significantly in the last six years. Yeah, I mean, those children, their families, their siblings, they're the future of those clubs yeah. because, you know, the people who are playing for those clubs now, they can't play forever. Mm. They can't be volunteers forever. And I think it's the same in all sport, you know, at grassroots level, these football clubs, cricket clubs, they're all run ultimately by volunteers. Yeah. So you need diverse ideas, mm. people and things like that. You need as many members as possible because you need to keep having volunteers to run, yeah, the, and, run the clubs. And sport, and particularly cricket, is, has been so powerful for people's personal well-being. So coming out of COVID, people appreciated what they'd missed by not yeah. playing cricket and, and having that natural interaction on the field, not just playing the game, but that, that chatting while you're waiting to bat or chatting at the fall of a wicket, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, and what we've found for a lot of clubs on a Friday night, all these young people starting the game are making friends, making friendships, because they're not just come for the session and go, like it does happen with a lot of situations in sport, um, but they're staying after because um, mum and dad have brought a picnic, or there's a, there's a bit of a food offer, or they're having a little drink afterwards. Um, the kids are socialising, the parents are socialising, and it's, it's become... A big evening and the whole family come along yeah um, and because the whole family are coming along 
girls particularly are seeing this is a game for me. This this isn't just a, a dads and lads thing. Yeah. The whole game involved, and the more mums that are starting to play as well, suddenly you know you've got lots and lots of examples where literally a whole family are involved in volunteering, playing, coaching, participating in the game on, on a Friday night or sometime on the weekend. That's so that's incredible. been a really healthy a healthy outcome in the last six years. Yeah, I mean, as um, we were talking just before we started, but I mean, as someone who was heavily involved in playing and, you know, was relatively young at the time, still in my 20s, um, someone who was, you know, played cricket every week all summer from, you know, age nine, really, up mm. into my 20s, and then obviously from probably 15 upwards, I'd play when I was playing the men's cricket, I would stay behind and I'd stay and have a non-alcoholic drink with the the other players and stuff like that. And as I got older and think, you know, that social side of it was massive for me. Um, my father died when I was 16. There's a group of guys at Ryder Cricket Club who literally kept me involved, mm. which was a massive thing for me at that point because I was at a bit of a crossroads in terms of I could have easily stopped going because my yeah. mum wasn't really involved in it mm. it was more my dad so if you know those guys like Carl Norman and, and mm. John Wilson hadn't you know just kept a bit of an eye on me and said come on mm. you know, I'll take you to training or I'll mm. take you to the game on Saturday mm. I probably would have veered off away from yeah. it and you don't know and then I'm and then I've had the other side of it whereby since 2008 where I had a car accident I had it taken away from me yeah and I missed that sort of social social side of it because I find it quite difficult to go and I went down and watched Ryder a couple of times mm. and I found it really difficult mm. because you wanted to yeah you want to play and, and stuff like that yeah. Yeah. but I did have um, a brief conversation <coughs> with Phil Haynes the other probably a month ago I asked him about some disabled cricket in Cardiff and stuff like that mm. but this very I'm very um, I don't know what the word is apprehensive I guess yeah. about it and yeah. and broaching it and things like that but it's an idea I suppose it's, it's, it's something or, or yeah. coaching or something like that maybe. yeah like yeah. I th and this is the frustrating thing for me is that I think if I still played I'm pretty sure my kids would all play yeah you know three boys they were all even if they weren't boys but I mean they're all particularly well the older and the youngest yeah. are quite sporty yeah and I think if I played every week they'd have watched and yeah so kind of graduated from that. Well, I was going to ask you. So obviously, for 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 uh, if you take out the representative side, so like county and stuff like that, for uh, for me when I was playing for Ryder, say it would have been I'd have played like kids cricket in my different age groups, mm. and then because I was all right at it, I think I started playing men's cricket at about thirteen, fourteen, and kind of, you know, as I got older and better, I gradually went up through the teams. Is there, will there be a similar pathway for girls with, say, like those village teams whereby they'll play through their age groups and then go to like the women's senior team? Or is it slightly different because of numbers? Still uh, growing and evolving. So the, the, the state of girls junior club cricket is still developing mm -hmm. um, as, as numbers grow of teams of course, yeah. that are evolving 
um, so that either standalone girls' leagues or girls playing with boys in, in, in junior leagues grows and grows. But there will come that time when we've got lots of girls are now basically good enough and old enough to play senior cricket. So they'll either play with a lot of blokes that yeah, only yeah. play on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon, or will want to play women's only cricket. And I, I can only see that that is the area that's going to really grow. So one of our challenges of the future, we're thinking a lot about the facilities that we've got in Wales. And there will that be a lot be of my next question. There will be a lot of pinch points on, um, particularly on a Sunday afternoon where the club has got a cup game, but the women's team have got a home game, and who's going to play where? Yeah. So the installation of non-tough pitches, um, clever use of grounds, ground sharing, all these type of things. You know, we've we've mapped out uh, that we've got some pretty growing hotspots of. Um, a surfeit of demand over the supply of pitches at the moment, particularly in Cardiff. That's certainly the case um, with uh, things like the midweek leagues that exist. Um, uh, there's, there's a lot of demand to play. Um, haven't quite got enough pitches to accommodate everyone all at the same time. Yeah, so I suppose you have to be inventive then, the new, like you yeah. say, midweek leagues and, yeah. and ground sharing and things like that. And yeah. um, the other question I had about the kind of evolution of that is did you have pushback from the kind of village clubs because obviously certainly going back to when I was last there a lot of these grounds have only got one set of changing rooms mm -hmm. so obviously if the you know if there's like a, a teenage girl say who's very good so she's going to play for the men's first team. or second team because there's yeah. not a women's team yeah how did how did you have pushback in teams with in terms of well we've only got men's changing rooms and because yeah. obviously they've got to then find the funding to create a separate changing rooms and things like that. It's just I guess I'm interested in how clubs accommodate it, but also if there was a bit of pushback in the your push for equality and and mm. to get more girls and and women involved. So one of the. Um strap lines, so to speak, of our diversity and inclusion strategy is that we want people to feel welcome when they come to a cricket club mm -hmm. um, and, and, and that they feel at home. Whether that's the physical, social welcome, that they, you know, people actually speak to them yeah. and, and they, they feel welcome like that. Well, the facilities are appropriate for just the situation that you just described. Um, and for a lot of cricket clubs, the latter, they're not. You know, most cricket clubs haven't caught up with the changes course, in the game. Yeah. Um, and it's quite challenging to do it. You can't just build, you know... No, extra changing room or... It's, there's a lot of... It's, there's a lot of hurdles in the way of, yes. of, of providing more accommodation. Um, and, you know, people are getting around it by coming change. And COVID helps in that sense, in, in that, you know, when we were getting coming back from COVID, we all came changed and we all left unchanged you know yeah there were no showers so yeah look um and an important part of all this discussion is safeguarding so the appropriate ways that cricket is run particularly where you've got mixed gender or different generations of of young people and, and adults playing in, in in the same game but that's one of the beauties of the game um that you can have uh, different ethnicities in the game and, and cricket has a, a rich history and, and it, it, it's becoming even more diverse you have 
different genders in the game and, and different generations in the game. I played in a game the other day uh, where I um, I opened the bowling, uh, bowling against uh, one of the Welsh women's opening batters. Um, and then after a few overs, I came off and a 13-year-old uh, lad from Panath, um, spin bowler, came on who's got uh, Indian ethnicity. He came on. And uh, so there was... I know you'd never believe this, but I'm 60 now, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so 60-year-old, 13-year-old, man, boy, woman, all playing in the same game. It's just normal. Amazing, you know? yeah. And nobody was batting any eyelids at all. So, um, so the, all that rich diversity of what cricket can do. It, it, and when I was growing up, I played with uh, some fantastic cricketers, the likes of Joey Benjamin, um, before he went to Surrey and played for England. Um, uh, Dean Headley who played for England his dad Ron and I played with so many different people from an Indian, Pakistani South African uh, West Indian, particularly West Indian background um, that it actually uh, playing alongside people from, um, from, from different ethnicities was um, the norm for me mm. different genders wasn't the norm then when no. I was growing up now it much so the case and and cricket clubs are evolving and, and the more progressive ones are really doing that really well. Good. That's what I like to hear. And so to kind of finish this off, I'd like to hear a little bit about the the author that is not Mark Frost. <laughs> um, but before we do, you, you mentioned when you went to university, you went to do geography. Yeah. So you didn't go to do you know, writing or creative yeah. writing or yeah. English or something like that. So how did that... How did Mark Frost, the cricketer, become uh, an author and uh, a different name? And why the different name? So uh, I'd always wrote, you know, whether it's short stories or articles um, about the game and, and other things, a bit of poetry as well, but never really got anywhere with it. And then back in 2007, we went on a family holiday. We've got four children, and we were quite young at the time, at a week in Paris and a week in the Dordogne, and um, I normally keep a little diary of the things that go on on, on holiday. And, and one of my sons, Nathan, um, we stopped in a service station on the way down the M4, and he got lost. Yeah, lost child scenario. As kids do. Yeah. And then we got on the ferry, and he got lost on the ferry. <laughs> okay. So when I was writing that up that night in the diary, I thought, what if there was something more subversive going on mm. here? And then. The next day we went to the Louvre and we saw the Mona Lisa and everything. Um, and then when we had that week in the Dordogne, we met some... Uh, we, we stayed in a fantastic place, we met some amazing people. And all this suddenly found its way. I thought I, I was just using all these places and people um, in a way. So um, I ended up self-publishing a, a, a novel. Mm -hmm. um, which was called The Four, which is because we've got four kids. Um, so it was about us as a family on holiday. But uh, it was described as a, a sort of if there was a romantic liaison between Ian Fleming and Edith Blyton, this would be it. Um, mm -hmm. And it was pretty far-fetched, but that's, what, that's the sort of stuff I wanted to write. So the four kids get into trouble, they witness a robbery, um, they get separated from mum and dad, they're on the run from the baddies and the police, um, and, and they're helped by some um, some strange people 
that they meet in, in along the way. Yeah, along the way. So, and then I had finished it, and but I hadn't. So I thought there's too many loose ends here. So I kept the string, the, the threads going, yeah. using other family holidays um, in the different parts of the world and um, friends and people I knew that might possibly found the way in into those stories. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up writing three three books. Um, but uh, at the time, the, the the publishing, well, it wasn't a public, the self-publishing house suggested, um, I didn't use my name because there's a, there's a really well-known American author called Mark Frost. Um, and so often when, in my early days as cricket, people would call me Jack because of my surname. Of course. And my grandfather's middle name was Emson, so I just put the two together and used Jack Emson as a name. Yeah. I probably didn't need to because... Um, I was probably deluded in that I was going to thought I was going to sell lots of <laughs> books, which I didn't really quite do. Um, and then since then, I've written two short stories around, largely around my work at Glamorgan. Um, so all year round, we have school trips come in uh, on stadium tours, where they go into changing rooms, they play, they go into media centre, and you know, they're generally wowed by the, you know, course, the, the yeah. beauty of the stadium. Even on a dull November day, it's an impressive place to be. And um, so I've written, I wrote a short story about a, a school, primary school in, uh, in the Rhonda, uh, who make a trip and they end up playing in a festival and they end up playing in the summer on, on the main ground itself with other schools. Um, and there are some shameless references to people that I've known or still know in there. Um, slightly changed the names, but um, mm-hmm, they're all mm-hmm. there to be seen. Um, and I did a follow-up story to that one as well. Um, so, um, so the first one of those is called Derry and the Cricket Dragon, um, and the the second one is around the scenario. It was just before COVID, actually. COVID hadn't hit, but it was the scenario that a big company took over Sapphire Gardens and closed it down, mm-hmm. and and it went. You know, weeds were growing out the gates and everything like that. So um, it, it was that type of thing. So I haven't um, put that one out uh, on for e-distribution yet, but I think I'll have to do that in some in some case. If someone find it. If someone likes it, maybe I'll I'll get it published. Yeah. But I've enjoyed I've enjoyed the whole storytelling bit of it, um, and it very much linked back to bedtime stories with my kids. You know, I would tell them the same story time and time again mm-hmm. in different ways but I would make it up as I went along yeah, and, and with these stories I a lot of it was like I had a sort of rough idea where I was going but I like that inventiveness of where am I going with this you know yeah. um, what's the next bit I didn't quite know half the time um, and when the kids were little my, one of my sons my oldest son Jacob rumbled me because I was telling them this bedtime story and I said and then Simon was on the edge of the cliff, and I'll tell you the rest of it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I did that too many times for him to say, Dad, you don't actually know what the rest of the story is. <laughs> you're, just, you're just going on you. you know, so um, he, he rumbled me. But no, I just enjoyed that, you know, where, where, where can the story go? Yeah. And, and, but you can only write about what you know. So people you've met, places, particularly places um, that you've been to, and... Um, Hopefully, some of that emotion comes through there as well. Awesome. Do you think uh, we'll see another another book from you? Hopefully, um, I'm working one at the moment about a rather hapless um, 
56 year old guy who um, gets challenged to steal something um, but with a good reason to do it not, not mm. just for yeah. personal benefit um, but I haven't quite worked out what that is yet because okay. I was I always enjoy a good heist story a good yeah. heist film so I quite like to do one like that but uh, more comedic than anything I think what was the response from your kids for your two year books um uh, well, anything Dad does is slightly embarrassing yeah, anyway, so it's not cool to like what your dad does, but um, and, it, and they were all mentioned in there, so um, I think they'll probably come to like it in future years, so rather than at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so I bet you they read them to their kids. They probably will do, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. Um, where would you like to, obviously with your job with the cricket and and expanding that kind of equality into grassroots sport and things now. In five years, in the perfect world, mm. what changes would you like to have implemented and where would you like to see that be? Two, two things, really. Um, I was talking recently to a chap called Nick Pride who's just finishing um, at the England Wales Cricket Board leading on participation. Um, and in the last few months there's been a really significant report for cricket um, on equality yes. and equity um, and it's been very challenging for cricket but it's been a subject that you know, I've been working and, and all my colleagues in, in Glamorgan and Cricket Wales have been working hard on which is that point about making the game a game for everyone uh, a game where people feel welcome they feel at home um, and not words which are box ticking but actual practical realities of of making sure that cricket is inclusive of and representative of the community it's existing so that's a massive area of work and there's lots to be done and this recent report whilst it's a UK wide one um, has was hard hitting so mm -hmm. th there's, there's a lot of work to done we've done made some progress but there's still a lot more more to, to be done um, so that's an area that actually, in five years' time, has cricket embedded the whole concept of equality, the whole concept of inclusivity in every cricket club. Um, that's that's a big challenge, and that's a, that's a, a lot around behaviour change as well as changing rooms. Um, so that's one big area. But the other big goal is around ambition. So. I've seen in my own club in Penarth, I'm the chair of, of that club, so if I'm not working in cricket, I'm volunteering in cricket. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to walk the talk in terms of the, the, the initiatives that we've had in cricket. So we've got the biggest All-Stars and Dynamos section in Wales, second biggest in the UK, um, and it's been a fantastic experience for the club. Um, and not every club has woken up to that idea of having such a big, scale of activity that has brought so many others in it's not quite worked through to adults but it's caused the profile of the club to expand more people want to play in the adult teams as well um, we've got girls cricket for the first time in the last two years which has been brilliant and it's that scale of ambition I would love more and more clubs to have I can see it in certain other chairs of clubs where they really want to be a big, powerful, significant club. And um, I suppose enviously, over the years with my own kids playing sport, 
mainly soccer and rugby, that that's Saturday, Sunday morning of grounds teeming with kids playing rugby or, or, or soccer. I want that to be commonplace for cricket so that yeah. on a summer Saturday morning or a Friday night, there are millions of kids running around playing cricket, millions of parents there enjoying it as well. And I'd, I'd love that to be commonplace for all cricket clubs in Wales, not just 10 or 15 of them. So, but that's, so those two areas really are my, my passions for the future. Excellent. And look, it's exceptional, uh, exceptional things to want at the end of the day, isn't it? It's going to yeah. make things better for everyone. Yeah. Uh, so I like that a lot. It's not about personal gain. It's about everyone. Yeah. Yeah. like that a lot um, Mark it's been a genuine pleasure and uh, an honour I've got to be honest I really enjoyed it it's been uh, it's been a good fun chat I can talk to, talk cricket all the time <laughs> anyway so I'm yeah. quite happy with that but um, no it's been fun I really enjoyed it thank good. you very much for your my time my pleasure cheers sir. and um, I will also drop links to your books in yeah. the description below cool. as uh, Angle Morgan Cricket we'll stick there yeah. so anything else you want me to put in there I'll put in there too but um, guys Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, as always, please do subscribe and like all that good stuff. And uh, we'll be back next week for another episode. Thank you very much. Podcast Network.